0: Once again, you are spending another lovely evening in your emergency department and you're dealing with the usual typical difficult cases. You have a patient who has chest pain and you think to yourself, if I only had that ultrasensitive troponin, I'd already be done with this case. Meanwhile, while you're typing into the EMR, the patient that overdosed on heroin is standing in front of you at your desk going, can I go now? Can I go now? Can I go now? Just then, Fire Rescue announces that they're bringing in a patient with a VFib arrest that they've tried to defibrillate three times. To answer these and many other questions in emergency medicine, stay tuned for EM Talkscast. Welcome to EM Talkscast. Uh, As you can tell from our clinical scenario, we have a couple of interesting articles. Uh, I know uh, uh, there are ones that I've been very interested in and and read before we even decided we were going to do them in Journal Club. Uh, And to start it off, I think we'll get going with the concern we had with patient one what, can an ultrasensitive troponin really help us out in the ED? What does the literature say, Ed? We've been talking
1: about this, it seems, for years, maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe decades. Literally years, right? And uh, and and we may have finally come across something that will be useful. So this first article is by Nowak et al. in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. It was just in December of 2018, so it's relatively recent. It's called Aturacid. It's called ultra-rapid rule-out for acute myocardial infarction using the Generation five cardiac troponin T assay. Results from the Reaction US study. I won't even comment about...
0: It sounds like a beginning of a Star Trek episode. <laughs> yeah, actually. it really does. So, so this was done
1: at Henry Ford. Um, I will mention that um, the f- study was funded by the Henry Ford Health System, but Roche also threw some money into the mix. For providing the assays, and at least three of the seven authors received various research support or fees, or were consultants for Roche and stuff like that. So you've got that little concern about maybe some uh, bias. Sure. But Mm -hmm. so what they wanted to do was two reasonable objectives: one, determine the clinical usefulness of a baseline high sensitivity cardiac troponin T level to rule out acute MI. From now on, I'm just going to say troponin. Gotcha. But really, we're, it's a high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T. Gotcha. Um, most people use troponin I. I know we do an RER, mm, so yes. this, is a, this is the other troponin, troponin T. They also wanted to um, devise a protocol um, that they could do a baseline 30-minute rule-out. And so they came up with some cut values that they thought would be useful for that. So this was a prospective observational study they used a convenient sample of patients. It was again at one single hospital, Henry Ford Medical Center in Detroit. It was run over two years, and they took patients over 21 years old who presented with any symptoms that were suspicious for ACS. So, I thought that was really good um, because you know a lot of these studies just look at chest pain patients. They eliminate the ones who come in with. You know, excessive fatigue Mm -hmm. or shortness of breath or things Mm -hmm. like that. And so they basically took on all comers. They excluded the usual stuff, right? If you were in acute distress and needed some life saving things done, if you were a STEMI, if you were a traumatic injury, those people were excluded. And they used this new Roche diagnostic assay. I'm not going to read the whole thing out, but basically it's this new assay that looks for uh, troponin T. Um, And then they looked for a final diagnosis. They had a cardiologist and an emergency physician adjudicate the diagnosis, and they decided whether it was a AMI from a type 1 from a plaque rupture or it was a um, myocardial oxygen supply demand, so a type 2 gotcha. MI basically. And then they looked at patients 30 to 45 days out and tried to figure out what is in. Um, this troponin assay, less than 6 nanograms per liter is considered negative according to the FDA. It's a little bit different if you go and compare the study to some of the ones done in Europe. They actually used five as their cutoff. Okay. Um, but this one is. So they screened almost 1,700 patients, and about a third of them qualified for the analysis. So 569 patients after various dropouts and stuff, which a little bit of a concern there, two-thirds of their patients were who were screened were dropped out. They come up they came up with 44 patients that had an MI, so 7.7% was their ruling rate um, in this group. Um, one of those patients had a STEMI shortly after presentation, 25 of them had type 1 um, non-STEMIs and 18 had type 2. And they had good inter reliability and things like that. Um, baseline characteristics, the group that ruled out had a lot more morbidities. Comorbidities than the group that um, didn't rule out. Um, so there was a lot. Uh, I might have said that backwards. The group that did not rule out from the initial one had a lot more comorbidities. So there was a lot more diabetes and hypertension and hypercholesterol, the things you would expect like that. Right. Let's just cut to the main results. So they had 164 patients that had a troponin that was less than six, and none of them had was adjudicated to have an MI at the end of this. So their negative predictive value was 100%. Their sensitivity was 100%. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when you do 95% confidence intervals, things lower a little bit like that. But it seemed to be pretty good. Um, They also looked at major adverse cardiac events or MACE within 30 days. And there was only two of those in that group. There was one non-cardiac death and one acute MI, which gave them an negative predictive value of 98.8%. So again, really pretty reasonable. Right. Um, in the group that wasn't ruled out, there was 405 of those patients. That was the vast majority. That was like 70%. The group that ruled out was like 29%. They managed to um, rule out just with that single troponin like that. Um, they had a reasonable positive predictive value for something like this. It was almost 11%. They then went and developed an algorithm to say that, okay, if your initial troponin is less than eight, and the 30-minute change in your pro- troponin was less than three, they had 221 patients in that cohort, and there were no missed MIs in that. So again, they had a negative predictive value of 100 percent. When they went and looked at the um, MACE, the major adverse cardiac events within 30 days, they only had one non-cardiac death. So again, a really good negative predictive value of 99.5. So in summary, if your troponin came back at less than 6, according to this study, almost 29% of the patients were immediately just ruled out then. And if it was a little bit over 6, but still less than 8, and you had a 3-hour done, they could rule out another 41%. So it really seems like they've got some good numbers here. Um, now granted, there are some limitations. This was a single urban study it was done in, so it's going to require some validation. Again, as I mentioned, they only enrolled one-third of the patients they screened, mm-hmm. so there might be some selection bias in there. Right. Um, there were some patients missing at the 30-day follow-up. There were, there were 30 patients unaccounted for, so that was almost 5% of the patients or so. But on the other hand, this really was a real-world sample. You know, they just looked at not just chest pain, but other symptoms. They had dialysis patients included. They included patients with recent MIs and things. Um, there was a editorial in the same article or in the same journal uh, accompanying this by Judd Hollander um, just from down the street at uh, Jefferson.
0: Hello, Judd.
1: And he was strongly advocating, based on this study, for implementation of this in the USA. So this may be a something really good that we can
2: hang our hat on. Finally, yeah, it, no, I, I agree. I think I think it's it's definitely coming, and seems like it's you know almost here right now. Um, it's kind of like when you first started using troponins back in the day. You know, went from CK and MB and Index to all of a sudden you had this troponin, and uh, it's it's going to be here. So I think it's just a matter of time. And you know, why not start getting on board with it a little bit?
0: Yeah, the question I have is whether adding this ultra-sensitive is going to really change our practice uh, in terms of how we use our current test. So remember, we use our current test. And the way we use our current test is that if the troponin is reported in a way so that the number is red on the uh, report... Uh, everybody says the troponin is, quote, positive. But the truth is, is that with our troponin I, and our troponin I, I think, is in nanograms per mil. So this the the 6 you're talking about is like picograms, if I remember correctly, uh, would be the equivalent. So our 0.03 would be a 30 here, and it's I and T. I get it. Um, so what we do is we kind of push our troponin I down to the lowest possible, Uh, And I'm just wondering what the delta is on gaining more patients. Like if we really use, because you know they in our lab they say 0.03 to 0.05 is like, you know, indiscriminate, right? Yeah, like you know, indeterminate. Uh, So the other thing I tell the residents is that when they are doing serial serial troponins uh, and they're being reported as 0.03 or less, they could be rising, and this is the assay that they might rise on because this is going to explore that range below our our current detection, again, given the difference I and T. Uh, So um, I do, I agree with you, Ernie, it's totally coming. We might, uh, and I've already seen folk commenting that, you know, I'm not sure what I'm getting out of this new ultrasensitive troponin because it seems to matching what we currently did. And I think we did do a lot where we pushed the old assay down to its lower limit and took that as a positive. It gets a little confusing
1: because when I was doing some research for this, I looked back in the Lancet in September of 2018, there was just an article that came out, another one of these um, anagrams that was the high DX in investigators or something, right? Mm-hmm. It was the high sensitivity troponins in the evaluation of ACS. But they were using high sensitivity troponin eyes, and came up with slightly different results. They didn't seem to be as as good as mm-hmm. this one was. So, right. it's unclear to me what the difference is between troponin I and troponin T in doing this. And so, when you're comparing those studies, you have to be careful about what you're what they were actually measuring. This this is troponin T. Right, right, this right. This one study at least looks good. You try to compare this tr- troponin I. I'm not sure how that compares and so, but yes, this is all still evolving Yeah. hopefully uh,
0: well, once the cost gets to the point where it's uh, you know uh, just one assay or the assay or the other, that's what happened with the old troponin. It just the new troponin just uh, came along, and it, it, the, the new assay was um, you know uh, cost effective. So everybody just right. scrambled and used yeah. the
2: newest and latest and greatest. And it's, you're looking for something to be very sensitive, so you don't miss anything. And they talk about being able to discharge many more patients with a rule out. Uh, but I think people have been afraid of the lack of specificity. Right. And then, right. you know, are you going to then have to admit more because maybe this delta is four, you know? Right. From, you know, yeah. So Every single
0: dialysis patient yeah. will spend a day in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: There's, there's definitely
1: a push-pull between us and the cardiologists because when you read, again, this one study I was reading, you know, from a cardiology standpoint, they're concerned about having more patients worry about they're concerned about the downstream effects and who's positive whereas we're concerned with as you said I just want to know that you're negative and you're not going to die in the next week so you can go see your family doctor Mm -hmm. and then he can decide if you're putting you on a treadmill Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. whatever so Mm -hmm. yeah there's a little push-pull between the between the two groups basically us and the cardiologists.
0: So uh so the answer is that yeah we kind of do wish we we had this uh, uh, essay yes. um but meanwhile we're dealing with our patient status post heroin overdose who really wants to get out of there. Uh Ernie what's the what's this latest study tell us about that and this is something we've looked at at EM Toxcast before and we've come up with some other conclusions uh it's going to be pretty interesting.
2: Yeah right. So our last general club um we we looked at a different paper we looked at the catch and release paper. Um, that was a pre-hospital paper, just medics uh, reversing opiate overdoses with, uh, with naloxone and then just releasing them. Um, and they were trying to figure it out. But it was in Australia. It wasn't really apl- applicable to our patient population. So I thought it might be interesting to look at this paper now. Mm-hmm. So this was the hospital observation upon reversal. If you look at those first letters, it's our with <laughs> naloxone, um, a prospective clinical prediction rule validation study. Um, So this was an academic emergency medicine a few months back, and it was uh, by Clemency et al. in Buffalo. Uh, So what they really were looking at was was a validation study of a previously established rule. Uh, There was something called the St. Paul's early discharge rule. This was done way back in 2000 when really the climate of opiate overdoses and even the reversal of opiate overdoses was a little different. Um, and then even more recently, there was a systematic review by Willman et al. in 2017, and they kind of came to the conclusion that four patients treated in the ED for opiate overdose, opioid overdose, I should say, an observation period of one hour is sufficient if they ambulate as usual, have normal vital signs, and a GCS of 15. Uh, so really, though, uh, that original study Uh, was never validated. So that St. Paul early discharge rule from 2000 was never validated. So that's what they wanted to do here, um, was to validate that. Uh, So the population they looked at, uh, it was a prospective study, observational. Uh, They recruited a convenience sample. They included patients who were uh, greater than 18 years old, treated with naloxone prior to arrival, could have been by police, by medics, by uh, fire department staff, um, uh, really anyone with w- who received Narcan, they excluded prisoners, patients that did not have a one-hour post-Narcan evaluation, patients that received in-hospital uh, naloxone um, before the one-hour eval, or those that wanted to be uh, requested withdrawal from the study. Mm. The patients who came to the hospital received usual care. Um, two-thirds of the patients were in the ED for more than four hours uh, six and a half percent uh, left in under two hours. Um, the data was extracted from these charts post-treatment, so after the patient was already discharged um, later on. And uh, like I said, it was just a, uh, the setting was just a single-center urban academic uh, uh, facility in Buffalo. Um, their intervention then was the application of this hour rule compared to clinical judgment. I kind of like that they compare it to your clinical judgment. Um, uh, it's nice to have uh, that kind of a comparison. So what is this hour uh, rule that they use? So it's uh, made up of six different, uh, six different um, factors. Uh, so can they mobilize as usual? And that's mm-hmm. kind of subjective. Uh, what's a, n- a normal O2 set? And one thing they did change here in the original... Derivation study, they used an O2 set of 92%. and in this study, they used 95%. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look important. at yeah. a normal respiratory rate, a normal temperature, a normal heart rate, and then a normal GCS. Again, GCS can sometimes be open to some interpretation also. So just those two things were subjective, the mobilization and the, the GCS. Um, and then what were endpoints? So they had the endpoints of adverse events Um, and they kind of define these. So there were a couple that were very patient-centered, so one death, of course, very patient-centered, repeat naloxone for a respiratory rate less than 10 or a sat less than 92, and then assisted ventilation for respiratory distress. And then some uh, adverse events that were more disease-centered, so uh, need for IV inotropes, antiarrhythmics uh, for, for tachycardia, cardioversion, mannitol, and the need for dialysis or bicarb administration. And then they also looked at, uh, they queried medical examiner records after the fact to see if they missed any that could have died because no one died in the hospital. Right. Um, there were a couple uh, what they called unclear adverse events, and it just uh, was a, a kind of a matter of how they abstracted these, who abstracted these. In the clear ones, it was done by medical students. In the unclear, it had physician review. Um, so what were the numbers? The numbers they looked at. So uh, out of this convenient sample of 690 patients that were screened, 538 were included, so that's 78%. The biggest uh, group that were excluded uh, were patients that did not have a one-hour evaluation. That was 112 patients that ended up getting excluded from the study. And I'll mention a little bit more about them later. So overall, they had 82% that ended up having an adverse event, so that's 15.4%. And when you look, compare that to the original study, the original study in 2000 had 16% adverse events, so, so pretty close. And then they reported zero deaths uh, uh, over the, you know, they just looked at it really a two-day period with medical examiner uh, review. Um, so So we looked at the rule, clinical judgment, and then both together. For just the rule itself, the sensitivity was 84% with a negative predictive value of 95.6%. So that means none of those factors, those six factors, they were all negative, so they're calling that, you know, negative uh, and 84.1%. For patients, uh, for just the clinical judgment piece of it, a sensitivity of 85.4% and a 95.8% uh, negative pre- predictive value. And when you put both together, uh, it was really still kind of essentially the same, a little higher, 87.8% sensitivity, 96% negative predictive value. Overall, in the uh, just using the rule, There were 13 cases that had an adverse event they would have missed. Just using clinical judgment, there were 12. When you put them both together, there were 10. Um, Of note, the greatest sensitivity was the factor of not being able to mobilize as usual. The greatest specificity was not having a normal temperature. Um, So the the authors kind of dug into these failures a little bit, and they really focused on uh, the patients who failed both the rule and clinical judgment. Um, they say there was really only three that were likely clinically significant. One that needed uh, to assist ventilation with BiPAP uh, for some pulmonary edema, and then two that required repeat uh, naloxone dosing, and one needing a, a kind of a continuous Narcan drip. Um, they did also just mention that of you know we had a, a large amount of exclusions for patients that didn't have that one hour evaluation. Uh, they said out, they looked at a subgroup of those fifty patients from that group, and it was only a 6% uh, adverse event rate. So they really feel like that, if anything, it wouldn't have skewed their data in any much of a, of a worse way. Um, so I picked out five things. That's really the, the basics of the numbers. I picked out five things um, to kind of talk about with this study. Um, one was just uh, the methodology itself. Uh, it was a single centers trial. It was a convenient sample. Um, the physicians who were making these um, you know these judgment calls that using the clinical judgment um, it was kind of right after the application of the rule so they say there could have been some bias there you use the rule now you're making a clinical judgment right after that right um, And then there was also different provider types who were doing this one-hour evaluation you had physicians you had residents you had some advanced practice providers um, so that can uh, skew things a little bit and then um, you know, uh, a lot of these patients who had ED stays greater than four hours, the authors felt like a lot of these patients who ended up having an adverse event in this four hours maybe didn't truly have an adverse event. And if they were discharged early, you probably wouldn't have seen it. It wouldn't have been included in their numbers. And uh, it, they may have actually turned out a little bit better. Um, the second thing I thought was interesting is that nowadays, right, the drugs that are being used out there on the street are different than what was used in 2000. And even the treatment is a little bit different, too. Um, uh, they make the point of, you know, back in 2000, heroin maybe was more like heroin. Uh, or right now, pure. right now it's almost everything was mixed. When they look at the, uh, the 10 patients that had er- adverse events in, uh, by both the clinical judgment and the rule, um, uh, they were all almost mixed in some way. Mm-hmm. Either they were methadone, mm-hmm. they were oral medications, uh, there were some with benzos in it. Right. Uh, so it's really not just a pure, uh, opioid overdose. Um, and then the our second part of this was the naloxone treatment that was given. It was almost all intranasal or said 85% was given intranasal and an average dose of 3.1 milligrams. So again, not similar to what was done back in 2000 with the original, uh, original study. Um, uh, so, uh, that, that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. The third thing about it, um, is there adverse events. They weren't, uh, really, uh, patient specific. The few that they point out, only three were patient specific, which were the, the death, the need for, uh, more reversal because of respiratory depression. There would have only been three of these patients. And, uh, with a prevalence that low, it kind of takes away from your negative predictive value. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's difficult to really, uh, to really go by a negative (laughs) predictive value with such a low prevalence of disease there. Um, The fourth thing I kind of thought was interesting was the rule was not better than clinical judgment uh, alone in detecting these patients who are at risk for an adverse event. Um, You know, I think decision rules uh, should answer pretty simple questions, and these patients by no means are simple. You know, you want to use a rule for, does this ankle need an x-ray? But these patients are very complicated. They have lots of other uh, medical problems, um, social situations uh, come up. Uh, So it's really difficult to find a rule that can take all of that into account. Um, And really the fifth fifth thing, like I mentioned, is these complicating factors. Um, You know, how how do you take into account all of those things when you're trying to figure out who is really safe for discharge? Um, So overall, the authors came to the conclusion that uh, they say it does appear to be useful for identifying suspected opioid overdose Patients treated with naloxone who are safe for discharge, but they kind of throw in a couple caveats. They are saying the prediction rule works when naloxone is administered intranasally in a population where synthetic opioids are probably more common than the original study. And then they just kind of go on and say further studies are probably needed. Um, So that's kind of the gist of that. And uh, I, I think, you know, overall, uh, is it? does it give you some information? Yes, it does give you some information, uh, but I don't think it's something that can really be relied on uh, when you're talking about a population that we see. It's just that the, the, the drugs are different um, and the treatment is, is, is different also. You have to be really sure of what the patient took, how they took it, um, uh, before you can really feel safe discharging these people.
0: Yeah, I think a rule is only as good as its application. And I agree with you that you have to be really suspicious of long-acting opioids and what have you. And some of the other studies that we have looked at have purposely eliminated those patients from uh, their cohort, you know, just say, right. like, you're not going to, let's not look at methadone overdoses, let's just look at heroin. You know, the, the criticism of all of these is that there's no such thing as heroin anymore. Uh, and my, my pushback on that is like there never was such a thing as heroin. Heroin has always been an adulterated uh, com, uh, you know, uh, uh, mixture, if you will. Right. Um, I published a report where heroin was uh, diluted with scopolamine or adulterated with mm-hmm. scopolamine many years back. And there was a time, I'm going to guess in the 90s, where heroin got very pure uh, and was mostly straight heroin. But even... You know, fentanyl goes back to those. Mm -hmm. The first fentanyl uh, overdoses were were way back when. So um, I think this can work, but there's a difference between the patient that we just described who's at the desk texting, saying, my ride is here, I want to go, and the patient who you're tempted to apply this to, who's laying on the stretcher with the sheet over their head Mm -hmm. um, and not bothering anyone, and then when you sternal rub them, they wake up and sit up and say, yeah, get me out of here. Well those
1: are the ones that the nursing staff is bugging you to get out right <laughs> because they're they're occupying the hallway and they want to clear the department up before they sign out at seven sure. a m and sure you're right, it's a little bit different than up and mobilizing is normal. And you're sitting there with a sheet over
2: your yeah. head.
1: you got to let them sleep it off a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I think so you, you really want them to clear whatever they took, I think, on their own. You want them to metabolize it, right? And just enough Narcan that they're breathing okay and that their pulse ox is fine. But otherwise, you know, let them kind of metabolize it on their own. And when they're ready, you know, that, then... The, exactly. The, you know, the then
0: right the dose one. of Narcan is the one that reverses respiratory depression, right? You know, it, you don't necessarily have to wake that patient up Uh, uh, per se. It's useful if you need to get a history or if you're really unsure. You want to see if you can fully reverse it. Now, what about switching from a 92% to a 95% set? Um, You know, to me, a 95% set opioid overdose is a little different than a 99% set. I do think it's some of these, you know, delayed pulmonary edemas, in my mind, that have been reported in the past are actually Missed early pulmonary edema as they got more fulminant. So, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah what I they was surprised there?
2: they were using 92 in the first study. I mean, that that I think 92 kind of probably makes us all a little nervous, especially in these you know supposedly younger uh, patients who shouldn't have real lung disease, COPD, things like that. Um, you know, 92 is abnormal. 95 is pretty abnormal. Um, I think for the purposes of the study, uh, though, kind of pushing that number up probably lowers their sensitivity a little bit yeah, um, which is, is not entirely uh, you know a, a bad thing I guess, yeah. but it still it still does make you a little nervous.
0: Yeah, 95 it'll it will give you a normal FIO2, but it's a different patient than a 99% set. So I think that um, and I think that the, you know having a having the investigators apply a decision rule and then apply clinical judgment, does create a um, I'm not sure is that a Hawthorne effect or um, that's I don't a, think that's
1: actually a Hawthorne. No a Hawthorne effect, effect yes.
0: might be like you know you're being studied yes right. for opioid uh, you know uh, sending ho- opioid patients home too early so you'll change your pattern so you're more careful that would be Hawthorne. Yeah, I'm not sure what what that. I
2: think this m- may be good for for students for for learners to look at these factors that we use. We kind of you know use all these normal things a sat a respiratory rate. Um, a heart rate to determine, with our clinical judgment, uh, if a patient is clinically stable, if they're safe for discharge. Um, So it may help somebody, you know, kind of a more novice person to to make a good clinical judgment.
1: No, absolutely. I I think that's true because... I I always tell the residents, it's like, yes, you should use the rule and get used to using the rule. After a while, it just becomes part of your DNA. And so I'm sort of looking at all this. I'm automatically going, what are the vital signs? What's the SAT? Mm -hmm. He's up and bugging me. Okay, he's... You you sort of just have incorporated this into your being at this point. So you're not doing a checklist, per se. Right.
0: And then the other thing is that you can use the rule as a continuum. You can say, like, well, the folks that really meet that rule are probably the safest to go. And the ones that I'm really... Unsure about you're like uh, you know is he he's up and walking around when I wake him up but is he right. really spontaneously awake? Not sure. You can observe that patient a little longer. Well, so um, moving on to the next, uh, we get the, the the next phone call is from EMS, uh, yes. and they they let you know that they have a refractory V fib case coming in. And the nurses know uh, that, uh, at least in my case, that you're interested in double defibrillation. You're doing a little research on it. And they say, hey, do you want to bring in another defibrillator into the room? And for me, it's always the answer is going to be yes. So I'll reveal my bias right off the bat. I'm I'm interested in double defibrillation. But uh, can this paper, which is a review article entitled Double Sequential External Defibrillation for Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation Out of Hospital Cardiac Arrest, Uh, A systematic review and meta-analysis. Can this paper shed light on that decision? Do you want to bring another defibrillator into the resus bay? So that's the clinical question. Is DSD effective? And I'm calling it DSD. They call it DSED for external. Uh, Is DSD, meaning double sequential defibrillation, effective for RVF? And remember, we define RVF, at least in most of the literature, as at least three attempts to defibrillate. Recurrent or refractory V-Fib, and that's going to be important later. Um, now, uh, you might know that refractory V-Fib is sometimes referred to as electrical storm, and we've posted some things on electrical storm. Uh, the treatments for that have been described at potentially as being beta blockers, amazingly. Uh, patients often will have so much epinephrine, adrenaline, if you will, circulating in their system that they will get an um, uh, uh, electrical storm. Uh, Also, you can use ECMO, right, if you just have a constant refractory V-fib and uh, resuscitate the patient that way. But double sequential defibrillation is an approach that's used that takes advantage of one of three possible mechanisms. Number one might be that the amount of joules, the energy that you're delivering to that patient, is now doubled because you're using two defibrillators. The pads are placed in a base apex and an AP, anterior-posterior, and so the spatio-temporal vector might get areas of the heart that one set of pads might not get, right? So you might um, be able to defibrillate because you're getting electricity to go through um, some part of the septum or the ventricle. And the, the sequential part of it might contribute because there is a, ref- there's a refractory period and then there is a sensitive period. Where the first jolt shock, if you will, will allow uh, will decrease will increase the sensitivity to defibrillation of the second shock. So one of those mechanisms or maybe all of them are at play here. Uh, the population that they looked at is since it's a systematic review they dug through databases including Ovid, Cochrane, and and they used Google Scholar to find the gray literature. And Ed, does the gray literature apply to people like us? is that? Yes, st- <laughs> I think that's
1: what they're talking about. Yes, they're talking about us sitting around, smoking a big fat cigar and telling stories the from 20 literature. years ago. Yes,
0: right, absolutely. Right. Well, actually, not quite. <laughs> it does apply to us, but not in the way you think. It's not because we have gray hair. But it's because there's a lot of reports out there uh, buried in things that are not in Ovid, Cochran, and PubMed. Um, some of them are technical reports and what have you. In fact, a lot of some of the stuff I did in my aviation medicine career is babysitting. Buried in naval technical reports. So much for my CV. But anyway, they dug through that. They used a, uh, uh, a tool called the Newcastle Ottawa Scale um, and looked at selection, comparability, and outcomes to assess the quality. And they used the Der Simeonin and Laird method to calculate a pool odds ratio and a 95% confidence interval. Now, they did not find any uh, randomized clinical uh, trials. Uh, and um, to my dismay, they pretty easily eliminated a number of case series and reports that I think um, have a tendency to show a better outcome. Uh, and as the, at the end of it, they were left with two studies to combine for a meta-analysis. That gave them just about f- uh, 500 patients. About 20% uh, in either study received the double sequential DFib and 80% were uh, managed with, with standard defibrillation. Unfortunately, the two different studies used two different definitions of RVF. Uh, one of them said three or more, the other said six or more plus a, um, a dose of antiarrhythmic, and the, uh, this is the, uh, we'll go over it in a little bit more detail, but the six or more was three base apex and three AP defibrillations. And their conclusion was that double sequential had no effect on survival to hospital discharge, Um, event survival or ROSC, and both of those had odds ratios that were consistent with that conclusion. They decided that the efficacy of double sequential defibrillation is unclear and it cannot be recommended in a routine way. Now, those authors' conclusions um, uh, we're gonna circle back with. So what about the quality of this study? I do think the diagnostic question is clinically relevant uh, with an established criterion standard. Uh, RVF does predict a very poor outcome when it comp- uh, compared to VF, but unfortunately the definition of RVF varied between the two studies that made it to their meta-analysis. Uh, they did an exhaustive and detailed search for studies, I agree with that. Uh, the methodology of the primary studies was assessed for forms of diagnostic research bias, and their assessments, the assessments of their studies were reproducible. Um, unfortunately, I'm not too confident that there was low heterogeneity uh, between the two studies, and although they did what they call an I-squared stat for heter- heterogeneity, um, a lot of the statistical wonks out there say that if you're doing a meta-analysis and just taking two studies to combine them, the chance of them really being uh, a homogeneous methodology are pretty low. So. I kind of gave the authors a thumb down for for that one there. Well, that's certainly true in this study because, as you mentioned, one of the issues,
1: I think, in this whole area is that there isn't a standard definition of what refractory V-fib is, right? One study says three, the other study says six, and then I believe also that the study that said six also included recurrent V-fib. In addition to refractory,
0: the other is yes. the, the, the the oh the other one yeah right. was recurrent and refractory Re- and
1: refractory, right. which might be two different entities. Could be,
0: I think, from a clinical standpoint, mm-hmm. if you defibrillate and two seconds later they're back in V fib, most of us feel like that is refractory. But right. you're right. That's recurrent. Right. But V-fib. but but
1: right. I was thinking of it more like you defibrillate them. We've all had patients like this, and then five minutes go by and they're back in V fib. That's different than I think going back into the V-fib within a second or two. Ah, uh, good point. I, you know, yes, you know? exactly I mean, right. So I'm not sure what they meant by recurrent right. versus refractory. Mm-hmm. Some of it's a definite, you're right, it's a definitional issue.
0: They did do a sensitivity analysis and pull out those recurrence, and they said it really did not affect the, um, the unimpressive outcomes of DSD. A um, couple of other things, the, the Ross study did not report the number of mean number of shocks uh, the Emerson study did, and folks who were in the double sequential uh, arm got about 14 shocks, and in the standard DFib had about 10. So that's a lot of, you know, that's, it wasn't like three, um, and, you know, they did one or two. They kept shocking trying to uh, reverse this. Um, the Emerson study had a, and, and the Ross and Emerson are the two studies that were in the meta-analysis. The Emerson study had a higher proportion of witness arrests in their standard cohort, and witness arrests generally, just in general, have a better outcome, right. and so that would have favored standard uh, approach. Um, and um, uh, you know the, the bottom line here is basically this, that um, the author's conclusion uh, that double sequential cannot be recommended for routine use in RVF I think is questionable. Um, I think that if uh, there have been a number of case reports and case series that have demonstrated benefit, at least in that format. And um, I don't think this this meta-analysis adequately vetted the whole concept of double-sequential defibrillation. And you really can't argue for double-sequential, but you can also not argue against it with this paper. So bottom line for docs, I think the RVF, RVF is a death sentence, right? So the, the survivability is like 3% um, if you're an RVF. So, you know, beta blockers, ECMO, if you've got it. Double sequential is, I think, should be considered. It's not super expensive. It's a very low-cost intervention, um, and um, I think it's worth trying. Now, here's my bias. Uh, We just did some research on double sequential defibrillation, and uh, I won't tell you, we've got this paper submitted. I won't tell you our results per se, but I will ask you this: When you're, if you have you done double sequential?
2: No. How about you? Yeah. A
0: couple now, times. when how did you activate the double sequential? Was it one person?
2: With one person with the fingers on two buttons.
0: Right. Yeah. So there's four different ways to do this. If you look at the literature, right. one is one person with uh, a finger on each button, and did you ask them to do it at the same time? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you could also ask them to do it sequentially, like bam, bam, yeah. or you could have two people trying to time it. Um, Or one person using one hand going, bam, and then reaching over and doing, bam. So talk about uh, a uh, heterogeneous thing. I mean, how medics and docs actually do the double sequential defibrillation uh, is very uh, heterogeneous, and... uh, is that the wrong way, by the way?
2: Or <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell? I can't, you can't tell. I'm not going to tell
0: until well, until we get that's, our... That's one of the reasons I
1: picked this article, because I knew you were interested in it, and oh, we, yeah. we were setting up protocols for it, and I was like, we at least should know, the resident should know something in the background of this, If we're and the other attendings yeah. also, if we're going to start doing this. yeah. I
0: mean, Trust me when I say this, it, it's a very variable uh, result. If you think you're doing double sequential you might not be if you think you're doing it simultaneous you n- might not be right. because you know you're talking about 100 milliseconds um and even for most people if they think they press the button at the same time they may not actually um be hard it may be like two 250 right. millisecond difference between so-called i did it at the same time so um that just adds layers of complexity to studying this problem. Besides, it does.
1: Besides the definitional problem of what exactly is refractory V-fib, you've got how exactly are you doing it? Right. And maybe my fingers are quicker than somebody else's fingers, or their reaction time is better than mine. And, and who
0: knows what the, good sequ- what the right <coughs> sequence is, yeah. how many so, milliseconds yeah. in between each. A great number of these basically just overlap. You know, they're actually simultaneous defibrillation with two vectors and two pads uh, through two pads. Uh, so, all to be determined, uh, and we'll see what uh, we're, we'll wait for our critical review and see what they think about our research, and well, then we'll, we'll talk about that on a future episode. I was going to say maybe the in the future we'll, we'll be reviewing on. Uh, w- one of your, we'll do a whole articles. double sequential uh, episode, yeah. and we'll really, we'll, we'll really dive, dive. Well, I don't know
1: in. if we should invite you to do what if, if you will bias the podcast too much <laughs> if you're reviewing <laughs> your own article. There, That's
0: <laughs> my podcast; <laughs> I can bias it as much as I want. <laughs> All right, so we've got our, so we've got these three studies, and um, we're we're able to uh, say pretty definitively that uh, with regard to our chest pain patient. Well, we're kind of looking forward to the ultra sensitive, and yeah. um, you know the jury might be out on how much it will improve our lives, but we think it's coming anyway, so we better study it and know how to do it. And it sounds like if you're standing at the desk texting after an opioid overdose, by any set of rules, you probably couldn't go. It's time to go. <laughs> so give that patient at least an hour, according to this paper. And you know, it, if you're a uh, someone who's doing research on double sequential defibrillation. Don't even ask. Bring the other defibrillator in. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, let the evidence build, and we can all decide down the road. All right. Well, thanks, guys. It's been great, and uh, look forward to our next podcast. And right. uh, we should say hello to Aline. Aileen. Aileen, yes. Oh, Arlene, wow. one of our favorite residents States. who is uh, a third-year resident here uh, at uh, uh, Drexel is, uh, recovering from, uh, her, uh, cardiomyopathy heart transplant mm-hmm. and, uh, is blogging, uh, about the experience. Right, geez. So we will put a link to that so you can yeah. read that. Yes. It, it is quite amazing, uh, to read about her experience. And, uh, it really is Yeah, a change
2: of heart. It's called a change yes. of heart.
0: That's exactly right. And hope, she- hopefully two of these articles
1: will not have anything to do with her in the future. Either defibrillating her or
2: ruling her out. Yes, we please. We, we hope that it's
0: all fixed now.
2: And she sent bagels to conference today for all of us. So so I know she's going to listen to this. So thank you, Eileen.
0: Oh, thank you. We love you, Eileen. And and remember that uh, being a, uh, a doctor does not make you a good patient, but being a patient makes you a better doctor. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a change of heart's message for sure. All right. Over and out from the EM Talkscast studios, everyone. Bye.